You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Uh, today's reading is from the book of Acts, um, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven and after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After this, he said this. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the, ver in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Amen. Uh, hi, DPC. It's really good to be back with you after a couple of weeks of holidays. Uh, it was actually a really refreshing time, despite spending it all in lockdown. Uh, if you want to follow along with the talk this afternoon, it'd be great if you could have the book of Acts open in front of you, Acts chapter 1. And you might also find it helpful to have the talk outline in front of you, which you can find on the welcome card uh, via our website. Uh, let's pray before we look at God's word together. We need God's help. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do ask that this afternoon you would speak to us as we look at your word together. Uh, please reshape our minds uh, please warm our hearts with your word uh, and please move our hands and our feet to live in ways that please you. Uh, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I wonder, where do we get the power to change the world? Oh, I know that's a pretty big question to begin with, you know, just putting it out there. Right? But all of us recognise that our world just isn't as it should be. It's not as we long for it to be, right? Even the past few weeks have shown us that. You know, rising COVID case numbers, escalating tensions about vaccinations, we've all seen that. Protests, even riots, it seems, at times in our streets. Earthquakes shaking our homes. But our world is just not as it should be. And I think we all really resonate with the idea of making a real difference in this world of ours that's so messy. By bringing about change, not just for a moment, but deep and lasting change. Change not just in our little patch of the world, but across the entire globe. 
But that raises the question, right? Well, where do we get the power to make that sort of change? Especially since most of us feel so helpless. We're so conscious that we're very weak and fragile, even sinful. And maybe we get this power to change the world by changing others. This is the message that our culture gives us, that it says that the problems are all with the world out there, and with other people and systems and institutions. So we change the world by changing the government, for example, or getting rid of all those anti-vaxxers. They're such a nuisance. By silencing the voices of people who are opposed to something like Black Lives Matter or supportive of the LGBTIQ plus movement. But surely it's a bit arrogant to assume that kind of all the problems of the world are just out there in the lives of others. Surely we can concede, right, that many of the problems in our own lives, in our families, in our world, are at least partly caused by ourselves. Indeed, Jesus says as much in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 and 21, and he says that the problems of the world come not just from out there in the lives of others, but from in here, in our own hearts. We don't get the power to change the world simply by changing others. Well, what about changing ourselves then? You might have heard Mahatma Gandhi famously said, be the change that you want to see in the world. At the other end of the spectrum, not quite Mahatma Gandhi, but Michael Jackson said in his song, Man in the Mirror, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. And in many ways, I'm really sympathetic to this message. If we want to change the world, we must first take a look at ourselves. But the problem with this message is that I'm just not that optimistic about the capacity of human beings, including myself, to change ourselves. Sure, we can make some small changes to our lives, right? I'm not denying that. But if you look at human history, uh, there are some pretty reliable patterns, aren't there? It seems that in every age, people find ways of being greedy and unjust and violent and self-centred. But it just looks a bit different in every age. Ultimately, we don't get the power to change the world by changing others or by changing ourselves but by allowing Jesus to change us. This is one of the main points of difference with Christianity, in fact. The power to change the world comes not from inside us, but from outside us, from Jesus. It comes not from finding our own truth to live by, but by receiving the truth of the gospel from Jesus. It comes not from getting in touch with our own spirits, but from receiving the power of God's Spirit from Jesus. So my summary of today's passage from Acts chapter 1 is that Jesus is at work bringing lasting change to the world through us as his people, who he empowers for mission, first by teaching us the truth of the gospel, and second by commanding us to wait for the Spirit. So first, let's look at verses 1 and 2, where we see that Jesus is still at work bringing lasting change to the world. Take a look at verse 1. Luke says, 
Uh, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all Jesus began to do and teach uh, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions uh, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. This former book that Luke mentions here is his gospel, the gospel of Luke, his biography of Jesus' life. And we know that because if you look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Luke says that he wrote his gospel to this same man, right, Theophilus. He wrote it so that Theophilus might know the certainty of what he'd been taught about Jesus. But notice here that Luke says his gospel is really just the beginning of what Jesus did and taught right, while he was on earth. So in this, his second book, the book of Acts, Luke is going to tell us about what Jesus continues to do and teach right, while he's in heaven. You see, lots of people want to say that all forms of religion and spirituality are essentially the same. You've heard this before, just different paths up the same mountain, a different packaging for the same teachings. And I can see usually the intention of those sort of comments is to be very inclusive and kind and tolerant. But the reality is that the devout followers of those different religions know that their religions aren't the same. And this is one of those points where the claims of Christianity are actually quite different to the other religions. And what I mean by that is that Muhammad, for example, right, the founder of Islam, uh, he did and taught lots of different things, uh, but now Muhammad is dead. Right? He's finished his ministry. And likewise with Buddha or Confucius or Joseph Smith with the Mormons or the founders of Hinduism and Sikhism, right? All of them are dead, but they have finished their ministries, right? Not Jesus, right? The, the radical claim of Christianity, the, the claim that Luke is making right here is that Jesus is not dead, right? Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. He's ascended. And now from heaven... He continues to act and teach through his people. Which is why the name of the book of Acts is a little bit interesting. Maybe you want to chat about this during the week. It raises the question, the Acts of who? Maybe it's the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Church, or the Acts of the Spirit. All of which are partly true. But I think verses 1 and 2 here tell us that Luke intends the book of Acts to primarily be read as being about the acts of Jesus. His gospel is about the acts of Jesus while he was on earth, and Acts is about the acts of Jesus while he's in heaven. But Jesus is still at work bringing lasting change to the world. And he brings that change through us as his people. Uh, who he first empowers for mission by teaching us the truth of the gospel. Now look at verse 3. Right, Luke says, After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to his disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Uh, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now this verse is Luke's kind of summary recap of the climax of his gospel by Luke 23 and 24. 
And notice all the action words in these verses. The, 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 verse, uh, the, the words that describe what Jesus did. First, Luke says, after Jesus' suffering. Well, you can read about Jesus' suffering in Luke chapter 23, right? Jesus was betrayed, he was mocked, he was rejected, he was whipped, he was unjustly condemned and crucified, right? Jesus suffered. And Luke says, after his suffering, uh, Jesus presented himself to his disciples. He appeared to his disciples. There are some examples of that in in Luke chapter 24. You You can read it later on. In verses 12 to 35, where we see Jesus appearing to two of his disciples on the Emmaus Road. And in uh, verses 40, uh, 36 to 49, rather, uh, we see Jesus appearing to his 11 apostles in the upper room. And in appearing to his disciples, Luke points out that, that Jesus provided many convincing proofs to his disciples. But proofs that he was indeed alive. And we see that in Luke 24, Luke 24, verse 39, where when Jesus appears to his disciples in the upper room, he urges them to touch his flesh and bones. Why? To prove that he's not just a ghost. Right? He's been raised from the dead physically with flesh and bones. And then in verses 42 and 43, Jesus asks his disciples for something to eat. So he eats a piece of fish right in front of them, right? proving that he's been raised from the dead physically. Because ghosts don't eat fish and chips, right? At least last I checked. But Jesus suffered, Jesus appeared, Jesus proved. And fourth, he taught, he spoke to his disciples. Luke says uh, for 40 days, Jesus spoke to his disciples about the kingdom of God. This is the disciples' kind of missionary training school with Jesus. In Luke 24, where we get some insights into what Jesus taught his disciples about the kingdom of God. For example, in Luke 24, verses 25 and 27, Jesus said to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah, whether that's the promised king of God's kingdom, right? Did not the Messiah, Jesus says, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. There's lots of implications in these verses, but one is that Jesus knew that if his disciples were going to engage in the mission that he was calling them to, they had to be taught the truth. They had to be instructed, right? Particularly, they had to understand the truth that all of the Old Testament scriptures pointed towards him, right? They pointed towards his suffering and glory, his death and resurrection as God's king. This is particularly what Jesus wanted to teach his disciples, right? He wanted to teach them the gospel, rather the good news of his suffering and death, his resurrection, his death and resurrection as God's king. You'll see in, in Luke 24, verse 25, Luke 24, verse 25. Uh, that Jesus doesn't just want his disciples to kind of know these truths in their heads. He wants them to believe them, to trust them, to depend on them. 
Indeed, he wants these truths to grip their hearts in a deep and powerful and meaningful way. And that's what happens if you look at Luke 24, verse 32. The disciples on the Emmaus Road say to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while Jesus talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? This is what Jesus wants for us as his people. This is what empowers us for mission, to be taught the truths of the gospel in such a way that our hearts burn within us. They're on fire for Jesus. Again, in Luke 24, at the end of the chapter, verses 44 to 48, Jesus taught his disciples in the upper room. Uh, Once again, he he taught them uh, about how all the scriptures pointed towards him, towards his death and resurrection as God's king. You see the point Luke's making? He's showing us that that Jesus understood uh, that if his disciples were going to be prepared for the mission that he was calling them to, they didn't just need the power of the spirit, they also needed the power of the gospel. Whether the good news of his suffering and death in their place, right, for the forgiveness of their sins and his resurrection and ascension into glory for the hope of eternal life. This is the good news of the kingdom. The good news that Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. So what does this mean? It means that if you want more power to, ha- to change the world, you know, to, to make a real difference in our world, you, you mustn't look deeper inside yourself. But you must look deeper into the gospel. Right? That's where the power of God is found. Right? Allow Jesus to teach you about the meaning and significance of his death and resurrection of the gospel in such a way that your heart is set aflame with these truths, that your heart burns within you. Jesus empowers his people for mission by teaching them the truth of the gospel. Uh, but of course, throughout the Bible, well, we see that God's word and spirit always work together. Right? So it's no surprise that in verses 4 to 8, Jesus empowers his people for mission uh, by commanding them to wait for the spirit. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus emphasizes that his disciples uh, can do nothing by way of the mission unless they are baptized in the spirit. Uh, look in verse 4, Luke says, Uh, On uh, one occasion, while Jesus was eating with his disciples, he gave them this command. Note that word command, or what follows, is going to be a non-negotiable directive from Jesus. Jesus says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father promised, uh, which you have heard me speak about. This gift is the Spirit. You see, Jesus isn't saying, hey guys, you know, you can mostly carry out this mission by yourselves, but but you need a bit of help along the way, so I'll give you my spirit. Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus is saying, apart from my presence and the power of the spirit, you guys can do nothing with this mission. So before you do anything, you must wait for the spirit. 
So even though Jesus is about to say in verse 8 that, that his people must be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, to the people of every nation, here he's saying there's absolutely no point in progressing with that mission uh, until they have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, because the baptism with the Spirit is a key mark of being a part of God's kingdom. Well, that's what verse 5 is about. Right, John the Baptist, the, the kind of forerunner to Jesus, baptised people with water. Right? <laughs> it's his name. Uh, but John's water baptism uh, was supposed to point us towards the spirit baptism offered by Jesus. Right? By Jesus, God's king. Uh, so when we come to trust in Jesus, to follow Jesus, he baptises us in the spirit to purify us, to cleanse us, to equip us and empower us for the mission that he calls us to. In verses 6 to 8, Jesus teaches that, that um, uh, he continues to act and teach uh, through his people uh, sorry, as he continues to act and teach through his people, God's kingdom will be restored not just to the nation of Israel, but to all the nations. Take a look at verse 6. Right? Jesus' disciples gather around him and they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So even after kind of 40 days of Bible college with Jesus, uh, the disciples still don't really understand God's kingdom. Well, when they say, at this time, it's pretty clear that they don't understand that the God's kingdom is going to break into the world really gradually. Remember, Jesus said it is like a mustard seed that will one day grow into a great tree. Well, they think it's going to come immediately, right, right now, in fullness. And likewise, the word restore, right, that has a sense of reestablish or rebuild, the disciples still think that God's kingdom is primarily a political or national kingdom, but not a spiritual kingdom, but not about the reign of God in the lives of people, which is even clearer when we see that their focus is kind of limited to the restoration of Israel, not the restoration of all nations. So in verse 7, Jesus responds to their kind of ignorance and confusion by saying, hey, it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. But essentially he's saying, stop worrying about stuff that only God the Father knows about. Whether the exact time and date that the God's kingdom is going to be restored to Israel or indeed to any other part of the world is something that's under God the Father's authority and control, not under your authority and control. And then in verse 8, Jesus says, but, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But your job, Jesus says, is to stop worrying and start waiting. Right? Stop worrying and start waiting. Wait for the power of the Spirit so that you can be my witnesses throughout the world. And to be a witness for Jesus is simply to point people towards Jesus. I point people to the wonders of who Jesus is, to the wonders of what Jesus has done for them. 
And it's clear that this witnessing is to continue all the way until Jesus returns. Right? Because Jesus says it's to happen to the very ends of the earth. Right? That's something that the, the, the people listening to Jesus won't be able to accomplish by themselves. And Jesus says they'll receive power for that witness when they receive the power of the Spirit. Right? Jesus empowers us for mission by commanding us to wait for the Spirit. Of course, we'll see when we look at Acts chapter 2 that, that in one sense, we as God's people don't have to wait for the Spirit anymore. Right? Because Jesus has already poured out his Spirit. He's already baptised us in his Spirit. So why talk about this need to wait on the Spirit? Well, first, because in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, where we're told that after a time of prayer, the disciples who'd already received the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 receive the Spirit again. They're filled with the Spirit again. Which doesn't mean the Spirit kind of left them and came back to them. It means that they received a kind of fresh infilling of the Spirit, a fresh outpouring of the Spirit to empower them, Luke says, to speak the gospel with boldness. And likewise, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul actually commands us to keep being filled with the Spirit. So even though we've already received the Spirit, it remains a good and God-honouring thing for us as God's people to wait on the Lord together, praying that he would fill us afresh with his Spirit. So what does it look like to wait on the Lord? Maybe it's not something we talk about. Well, first, waiting on the Lord requires us to have an expectant faith. Oh, I don't know about you, but if I'm waiting for someone, I only really keep waiting for them if I expect them to turn up. And of course, sometimes there's, I don't know, a mix-up and someone doesn't turn up, no matter how long I wait. But that's not what God is like. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 4, it says, Our God acts on behalf of those who wait on him. So we should expect that if we as God's people pray in accordance with his plans and purposes and promises in his word, that he will be eager to act on our behalf. We should pray with an expectant faith. A second, waiting on the Lord requires a devoted faith. In lots of ways, Gabby and I come from very different families. One example of that is that my family's typically really punctual, if not early, and Gabby's family's typically late. So when Gabby and I were first dating, I kind of spent lots of time waiting for Gabby. And while I was waiting, uh, to be honest, I found it really hard to think about anything or anyone else. I was just focused on Gabby's arrival. And it's a bit like that when you're waiting on God. You're focused on him. You're devoted to him. You're persistent in waiting for him. Well, not because you think you can kind of manipulate God, but because you believe in his promise that he's eager to act on our behalf, on behalf of those who wait on him. And we need God to act on our behalf. Right? Let's not kid ourselves. 
because what we want to see happen uh, in the inner northern suburbs of Melbourne, in the lives of, of our family, in our friends, what we want to see happen, people coming to know Christ and people becoming more like Christ, that is something that only God can do by the power of his spirit. So we must wait on the Lord with a devoted faith. Uh, finally, waiting on the Lord requires a patient faith. There's no way you can kind of fabricate an outpouring of God's Spirit. You can't just schedule it in your diary. I have a couple of months' time, right? You've got to patiently wait on the Lord, asking that he might pour out his Spirit to renew and revive and empower us as his people. And Jesus empowers us as his people for mission by commanding us to wait for the Spirit. Finally, in verses 10 and 11, we see that Jesus will return once he's expanded his kingdom to the ends of the earth through the witness of his people. In verse 9, Luke says, After Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So Jesus ascended into heaven. He was taken kind of out, as it were, of this physical realm into the spiritual realm, where he now lives and reigns at his Father's right hand. I mean, in verses 10 and 11, the disciples don't quite get that, which I understand. It's a bit of a mind bender. So they're looking intently into the sky, probably thinking, well, I'm not again. You might remember in Luke 24, verse 21, but before they realised Jesus had been raised from the dead, uh, the two disciples on the Emmaus Road said to one another, uh, we had hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But their hopes were kind of dashed when Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified. And now it seems like it's happening all over again, right? They ask Jesus about when he's going to restore Israel, and he just disappears into heaven. But just as they're thinking about that, in the midst of their confusion, in verse 10, Luke says, suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, presumably two angelic messengers from God. And the messengers said, men of Galilee, uh, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven uh, will come back uh, in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And the same Jesus who ascended into heaven, who now continues to teach and act from heaven, will one day return from heaven. And he will return when we as his people have borne witness to him to the ends of the earth. Right? We know that because in Matthew 24, verse 12, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom must be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And Jesus is going to return once he has expanded his kingdom to the ends of the earth through the witness of us as his people. So where is it that weak and fragile and sinful people like us get the power to change the world, to, to make a real, significant, lasting difference in the world? Now that power is not something we can drum up from inside ourselves. Right? It's a power that only comes 
from Jesus. As Jesus teaches us the powerful truths of the gospel, and as he commands us to wait for his powerful presence in the spirit. Brothers and sisters, I hope you're really encouraged. At this very moment, our Lord Jesus is at work bringing lasting change to his world. And he's doing that through us as his people, who he's empowering for mission by teaching us the truths of the gospel and by commanding us to wait for the Spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would so open our hearts and minds this day uh, to see and experience uh, that our Lord Jesus is alive uh, and that he continues to be at work in this, his world, through us as his people, uh, who he is empowering to bear witness to him by the powerful truths of his gospel, the good news of his death and resurrection, uh, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.